Drew, could you get that whatever you call it for me or somebody? Thank you. <laughs> okay, thanks. Such a blessing to be with you this evening. This meeting is always such a blessing for us. Thank you, Daniel. And uh, I appreciate all the work that you do, uh, the various things that are unseen behind the scenes where uh, you guys are making preparation for those of us who come. And uh, it really is a blessing to become a highlight of our year to be here with you. And uh, just thankful for another opportunity. It's a privilege and an honor to be your speaker tonight. And this is a wonderful subject that we're talking about. Let's open in prayer. Lord Jesus, you hold the key of David. You open and no one shuts. You shut and no one opens. Open our hearts now to see you as you're presented in your word. And would you be pleased to magnify yourself among us right here and right now. We ask it in your name. Amen. It's a great uh, pleasure for me to uh, have all my family here tonight, and uh, so thankful uh, to get to share this event with them uh, that I've shared with you for so long. And it's a pleasure for me to get to talk to you about Jesus. At some point in my life, Jesus became really, really important to me. Now, I know that may sound strange. You may think, well, he was always important to you, wasn't he? And in one sense, he was. He was important as an authority figure. He was important as the one in charge. But he came into my life in a way uh, that he became to really matter to me as a person. Um, for who he is and what he's done. And I came to adore him. At some point, I came to believe there's nobody like him. And... Uh, that if I can just be close to him and just be like him, uh, that would be so great. And tonight I want to share with you my love for Jesus as it shows up in the Word of God. You know, there are a lot of people who like Jesus. A lot of people in our society, they uh, will say good things about Jesus. You have a hard time finding somebody who's, who wants to say bad things about Jesus. That's just not very common. But how many people really love Jesus? How many people actually worship Jesus? I was watching the other day a video online of Oprah. Not that that's a usual practice for me. Um, but uh, she was speaking, it may have been at a church, and she was talking about spirituality. And uh, uh, she was speaking to this crowd, and she talked about spirituality. There was this gigantic applause and approval and everybody joining in joyfully with spirituality. And she was so clear to say, I'm not talking about religion. And she said, I'm a Christian, that's just my choice, but I have respect for all faiths. Now, the way she said it, of course, I have respect for all faiths too, at least most of them. Um, 
And uh, I, I think we should respect other religions. But the way she said it was more or less, Christianity is one option among many for you. Now, I'm a Christian, but it's just one option among many. And as she talked there, she talked about tolerance and acceptance. She talked about connection with divine energy or something like that. She did not say the name of Jesus. Not once while I was listening did she speak his name. And you know what my question is for Oprah that I'm planning to ask her when I see her? No. My question for Oprah is, whom do you worship? Or do you worship at all? And you see, what secular spiritualities have in common today is they, they take God off the throne and they still seek transcendence. They know they need something besides themselves, but it's not the God of the universe that's placed there. It's not Jesus Christ, risen Lord. And so they, they come up with other things, and they really get in touch with the human spirit. Because the greatest thing you can find once you get rid of God is yourself, made in the image of God. And in some way, we place ourselves on the throne, or we place our connection to the collective consciousness, or the life force, or our union with the, the one essence of the universe out there, something like that. You know, that's, that's the New Age Buddhist mix of spirituality that surrounds us. But there's no God on his throne. And that's not biblical spirituality. People want a spirituality without worship. And they want a Jesus without authority. Who's nice and compassionate, but not the guy in charge, certainly not the judge. And I want to tell you, that's not biblical spirituality. Here, here's something to know about biblical spirituality. True biblical spirituality begins with worship. And you cannot have it without worship. And that's why we have Revelation 4 and 5 in the midst of, of, of Revelation. Do you know that you have uh, in, in the book of Revelation, and this is where this song comes from, by the way, we've been singing. It's, it's from Revelation chapter 5. In the book of Revelation, you have chapters 2 and 3 that talk about the churches, letters to the churches from Jesus. And then in chapter 6, you get into the unveiling of, of things in the scroll, all these crazy events going on. But in chapters 4 to 5, you don't have anything like that. What you have is a throne room scene. Let me ask you this, why didn't John just skip chapters 4 and 5? Just take those out of there. What would be missing if that happened? I'll tell you what would be missing. The heart of the book of Revelation would be missing. The gospel itself would be missing. True spirituality would be missing from Revelation because we're not about predictions primarily. We're not about unveilings or apocalypses primarily. What we're primarily about in the Christian life is the worship of God. And we are made to worship him. We're going to worship him for all eternity. We're learning to do it right now. And so I want to talk to you tonight in Revelation 4 and 5 about biblical spirituality that begins with worship. And we're confronted here in this text with what do we think about Jesus? Is he worthy? And I want you to ask yourself that question. What do you think about Jesus? How do you really view him? And let this text ask you the questions. I don't need this. I'm going to use the PowerPoint. We start, and I'm going to go through Revelation 4 fairly quickly. Uh, it's kind of background. The chapters are both pretty short. Uh, but we need to see Revelation 4 to get into Revelation 5. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, come up here. And I will show you what must take place after this. I don't think I've ever heard a voice that sounds like a trumpet. 
I think I might have heard some people sing like that. Maybe. But, but don't miss the, what the point is here. The point in all this uh, imagic, uh, uh, visionary type, type things that John is showing is to show the power and the grandeur of the things happening in heaven. This is a powerful voice that speaks with authority and force. At once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. I need to make a confession to you. I'm not very good with my colors. I know blue and green and, and the basics, but once you get beyond that, uh, I don't really know what we're talking about. But I'm assuming this means something pretty beautiful and pretty impressive, something that will amaze us if we could actually see what it was. Some of you may know these colors. I don't even know how to match my clothes. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. I'm not a very, like I said, uh, uh, I don't see things very well. I'm not a very creative person. But those of you who are, Sit with this text and uh, let it come into your mind. I know people do this. I don't. I don't have those gifts. Maybe all of us can do it to, to a small extent at least. There's a picture of power and majesty here that John is putting before us. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind, that seems kind of weird. Maybe I should have had Josh do some artwork for, for this for us so we could get, a, get the right picture here. I think what the idea is is that these are um, beings that are seeing everything. So they're powerful beings and they're beings that are aware of everything. They have a lot of knowledge. The first living creature like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And what may be happening here is there's a picture of the most powerful being in its respective domain. The lion, the most powerful wild beast, the ox, the most powerful farm animal. The man, of course, powerful overall in one sense. And the eagle, the most powerful in flight. You get the image here. You get the picture of, of great power and majesty. Here's a, a picture I found online. Um, I don't know how well you can see it there, but... Uh, those are the four living creatures with different faces up front, and those are the elders sitting around. And then we're going to get to the host of angels back behind them in a minute. And this radiant throne with shinings forth and lightning going forth. We have to do the best we can to imagine what it was like. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, what is it these powerful beings want us to know? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. That's what they want us to know. That's what heaven's saying. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne. And worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast, the, they cast their crowns before the throne. 
saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Now, let me explain something very quickly here. It's not like God can't get power, right? So he needs to receive it. Or God can't get glory and honor. He is glorious. But there's something that we can give God, you see. We can give God. He's given us the freedom to give God glory. And that's what he doesn't forcefully take from us. He's glorious, but we give it to him. He's worthy to receive it. He's worthy to receive honor. For he created. That's the starting point for worship, is recognizing that we are creatures. And let me just say to you, one of the, the quickest, way, quickest ways to undermine worship is to erase the distinction between the creature and the creator. And when you stop saying there is a God who created us, then all of a sudden you're in a place where you don't have to think about who you're worshiping anymore. They start worshiping because they recognize he is the one who created everything. And that gets us to chapter 5. Oh, yeah, here's a picture for you. I forgot. I put this here. The elder is falling down. What an act of worship that is. Their crowns honored, great, greatly honored people here, and they're taking their crowns and just throwing them or casting them, placing them before the throne. I'm sorry they're all white elders. This is white people art. I apologize. That's what we do in white people art. We put white people in it. At least they're on their knees, <laughs> reflecting that they see God as he really is. Now we get to chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, written within and on back, sealed with seven seals. And see, they didn't have books back then. They had scrolls. You rolled them up. Tied them up somehow, sealed it. This one had seven seals. There's a lot of words on it, written in the front and the back. There's a lot of things to know there. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Now, you may be thinking, well, you know, who cares about the scroll? I'll read another scroll. I don't have to know all these things anyway. But there's, some kind of, there's some kind of connection. We're dealing with a vision where John is sensing the significance. And there's some kind of connection between the one who's able to open the scroll and the actual carrying out of the plan of God. The plan that's going to be revealed in the scroll. If you can't open it, you can't do it. If it can't be revealed, it can't take place. And that's where John, in this vision, caught up in the moment, is able to sense the tragic reality that is present without God's solution. He recognizes that there is no human answer to the human problem. There is no angelic answer to the human problem. There is nobody in heaven or on earth, or under the earth. There's nobody who's dead. Well, what about Abraham Lincoln? What about Gandhi? 
Nobody is worthy to open the scroll. And you see, if that were really the if we could get in that place with John, we would all be weeping. If we realized with John the utter desperation of the human predicament, that there are no answers for us, we would be there weeping loudly. You see, if no one in heaven or earth or under the earth is worthy, then guess what that means about me? I'm not worthy. Guess what it means about you? You're not worthy. You see, one of the starting points for worship is recognizing, coming face to face with how unworthy we actually are. You know, to some, let me just stop and say this. To some extent, we deal with, with terms that are relative. You know what I mean by that? Um, since my, my brothers are here, I can share this with you. I, I've said this before. Compared to my older brother, Matt, um, my muscles are not that big. My younger brother, Matt. But compared to my older brother, Brad, my muscles are very big. <laughs> See, terms of size big can be different depending on what context you're in, Right? What we do a lot of times with ourselves, when we, when we think about ourselves and our worthiness or, or uh, our unworthiness, however you want to say it, is we look around at other people around us. And we, and we, we come to church and we well, I'm probably better than that person is. You know, I'm at least as good as that person is, and I'm probably going to be as good as, as that one is on my way. You know, we look around and we, think, we come to worship and we feel pretty good about ourselves. And maybe sometimes we start to think, you know what? If I were there, I might would go up there and give that scroll a try myself. And that is the height of human stupidity. It's a complete failure to recognize who we are. As long as we look around at each other, we might do something like that. But the moment we turn our eyes towards the living God, we drop down and say, I am nowhere close. I don't know if you ever just stop and, and get a sense of the profundity of your own sinfulness. It's not a very fun thing to do, really. C.S. Lewis pointed out a long time ago that the, the more you see a person grow in Christ, you look back at the great saints, the more they seem to be aware of how sinful they are. I really think that's true. Because um, a lot of times people don't recognize how sinful and broken they are because they're not even trying very much. <laughs> they're dressing up on the outside, comparing themselves to a few others, and not really looking at the th things that are bad and hiding their, their bad stuff at home. Actually, when, when the, you become a saint, you become aware of how unworthy you are. And that's where worship begins. When you stop and say, not me. <laughs> it's never going to be me. It's never going to be anybody around me. We need help. That's the first point we see here. We've got three points. The first is the necessity of someone more worthy. The next one is the revelation of someone more worthy. And with this, we begin to see the paradoxes that reveal to us who God is and who Jesus is and what he's done. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. 
Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Praise God. Someone can do it. John, for a moment, didn't know that there was anybody who could do it, and yet there was someone who could do it. And he's revealed as a lion. And yet, as you see in the picture, he walks forward as a lamb. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now, let me just stop right here. We've got the lion and the lamb. We're, lear we're learning about this Jesus who is worthy of worship. And the first thing we learn about him, he's revealed to us. Who is he? Who is this Jesus that I can worship? He is a lion. And don't let that image slip your mind. I'm afraid that in our society today, in our churches today, I'm afraid we have made Jesus too nice. And I'm afraid that we have sort of dumbed him down to be meek and mild, sweet baby Jesus. And while he is kind and full of love, we cannot forget that we are dealing with Jesus. We are dealing with a ferocious beast. And he is untamable, and he is not safe. And he will mess with your world. And if you look at him in Scripture, he is a troublemaker because he refuses to back down. You ever watch that about Jesus? I love him. I just I love to read about him and see what he does. Man, he comes to a, a man with a withered hand in the midst of a synagogue, and, and he knows that people are watching him to see if he'll heal him on the Sabbath day. He knows that. He knows they're out to get him. You know what he does? He goes out into the middle. Your English translations don't, don't a lot of times show you this. He says, he says, come here. That's not what he says. He doesn't say, come here. He says, come into the middle. He calls that guy out into the middle of everybody. All those people around watching and then he looks around at them, and he throws down. He says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And he's looking at these people, and he's angry. Is it lawful to do good or to do evil on the Sabbath? And nobody can say a word, because they know what he's about to do. And he looks at that guy, and he says, stretch out your hand. You got a problem with that? <laughs> I mean, he's really, he's intentionally, he's messing with their world. And he won't back down. You see, sometimes we make Jesus so, so neat and meek and nice and proper that we forget that our calling is not just to be neat and nice and proper. Sometimes we have to stand up. I've been sort of forced into church leadership since I was too young to be doing it. And I think if I ever write a book about church leadership, I'm going to call it, Why Are You Mad at Me? <laughs> Anybody in leadership knows what I'm talking about. Maybe I'll call it, Please Don't Be Mad at Me Anymore. <laughs> Guess what? You try to be like Jesus in leadership or in other areas, people are going to be mad at you. And you've got to be able to stand and take that. You've got to realize that you're following the lion of the tribe of Judah. And there are times, of course, we're kind and we're gentle. But we know how to stand. Because we're following, we're following one who stands. 
You remember when uh, they let the paralytic down before Jesus, crowded room, they drop him down there. He says, your sins are forgiven you. People in their hearts are saying, he can't forgive us. Who can forgive sin? Nobody but God can do that. He knows what they're saying. And so he stops before he does anything else. And he throws down a challenge to them. You know, now I, I pray for people's healing. Right? And uh, I've seen God do some mighty things. But I tend to pray, like, up front, letting people know there are no refunds. You know what I mean? You won't get your money back if this doesn't work. <laughs> we believe God, you know, you can do it, but, you know, here goes. <laughs> Jesus, Jesus says to them, what's easier to say? Now, in one sense, you might say it's harder to forgive somebody, but that's not really the test here. The test here is, is what can actually be revealed on the spot right now. You can say a lot of things that maybe are in the unseen world, but, but if you say something's going to happen and it doesn't, you're in trouble, right? So Jesus looks out at them and says, what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you or stand up and walk? And he looks at them, lets them answer. <laughs> but I say to you that you may know that the Son of Man has power on the earth to forgive sins. Get up and get your mat and go home. Whoa, there's the lion. And he won't back down. He won't back down in pursuit of the goodness of God's purposes. He's also a lamb. That's what's crazy, isn't it? This lion whom no one could tame and no one could kill when he's revealed, he walks out like a lamb, and he's been slain. I'm afraid we have forgotten how to appreciate. Because we're so familiar with it, we've forgotten to appreciate what it means that Jesus died for our sins. I want to give you some shocking news. God came to earth and we killed him. And by his blood, he then saved us. <laughs> and if that doesn't blow you away, you've forgotten how to appreciate the mystery of salvation. Who is like our Lord? All these unworthy people needing help, and there is one dying for us. The hymn writers have tried to peer into this mystery and give it to us in poetic terms. I love Charles Wesley's hymn, And can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me who him to death pursued amazing love how can it be that thou my god just die for me he left his father's throne above so free so infinite his grace emptied himself of all but love and bled for adam's helpless race his mercy 
all immense and free. For oh my God, it found out me. Is he worthy? He is. And this lamb who's died walks up to the throne. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. You see, now they recognize something again. Each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Now they're back in worship, but now they're not just worshiping the one who's on the throne. Now they're worshiping the lamb as well. Do you know the only person who can walk right up to God is God himself? Try it and see. <laughs> Ask people who watched the mountain quake and feared for their lives in the Old Testament. You don't walk right up to God, <laughs> but the Lamb walks right up there. And now we're into the mystery of Trinitarian salvation. God is one, one being in three persons, <laughs> and our salvation is tied to the Trinity, Jesus Christ. The lamb carrying out the plan. And when they see it, now all of a sudden, those who did not worship the mighty angel with the trumpet voice, those who did not worship the beast flying around, their scary looking eyes, they're on the ground before Jesus. Who would have thought, this is what we sing sometimes, who would have thought that a lamb could rescue the souls of men. Last point. We've got the necessity of someone more worthy and the revelation of someone more worthy. Now we have the worship of the one who is more worthy. And they sang a new song. Not because they're tired of the old song. They sing a new song because there's been a new revelation. They've come to a new understanding, and they want to sing about it. Worthy are you? Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and, and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Do you realize that Jesus Christ is the only person in the universe to whom we can sing this song. Sometimes, you, you'll, uh, if you're into sports or other areas, you'll hear people say, well, you know, some, some great exciting sports figure, basketball player comes along, and they say, he's going to be the next Michael Jordan. Maybe if you're into politics, you'll say, well, he's going to be the next Ronald Reagan or Bill Clinton or whoever your political hero is. You know something nobody's ever going to say, speaking in the Spirit, with any sense at all? He may be the next Jesus Christ. They'll say, oh, somebody, he's the second coming of LeBron James. You know what? The second coming of Jesus Christ will be the second coming of Jesus Christ. <laughs> because there's not going to be another. There never has been and there never will be. He's the only one. He is worthy of that. And he ransomed us by his blood. 
That's the term you use for, for buying prisoners or buying slaves and setting them free. But he doesn't just buy us and set us free. He takes us and makes us a kingdom and priest. And we're going to rule and reign with him. See, he didn't just grit his teeth and say, well, let me wash them off and send them away. He said, let me take them back. That's redemption. They're mine now, and they're going to do God's will for all eternity, and they're going to have glory and honor with me. Praise God. This is what Jesus has done for us. The one who's worthy to forgive our sins is also worthy to make a claim on our life. You know that? Jesus didn't shy away from that either. He tells this parable one time, it sounds rude. Until you realize who you're dealing with, it sounds rude. He's like, when you've done all that you should do, when a slave does all he should do, he doesn't come in and sit down at the table and say, give me some food. He says, when a slave's done all he should do, he says, I'm an unprofitable servant, and moves on. And he's saying that to people following Jesus, following himself and, and following God. And the point is, we are, we do our duty. We, he he deserves all that we'll ever give him. And whatever we do, you, you go out and do the greatest deeds that have been done on planet Earth, and at the end of the day, what you need to say is, I owed him that. I go out and give my life to causes that are good and kind and fighting for justice and peace on earth. And when I come to the end of the day, I don't say, well, man, I'm great. Put me down in the list of heroes. I say, here's my crown. Because you're worthy of it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer has a famous line in one of his books. He says, when Christ calls a person, he bids him come and die. Who has the right to do that to you? Jesus does. And he says, take up your cross and come follow me. And he can do that. And if you mess with that untamed line, he will mess with you. He will shake up your world. And he's worthy to do it. The problem with Oprah's spirituality is what it really says is Jesus is not worthy. And that's the problem with the pluralistic thinking in our society. It's not that we want to be mean to anybody. We want to respect and be kind to everybody. But we must call things what they are. And we cannot back away from proclaiming the power and glory of Jesus Christ. Oprah's spirituality says my friend Shivraj didn't really need Jesus to come to him in India. He was fine like he was. But that's not what Shivraj will tell you. Finally, let's get to the last, last part of this chapter. I don't know where I'm aiming this thing. I'm glad it's working. Maybe, Michael, you're just doing it when I point. Thank you. <laughs> I'm just going to start shooting my hand. <laughs> then I looked 
And I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. I like the way the King James puts this. A thousand times ten thousand and thousands of thousands. Or as the New Living says, millions, thousands and millions, or millions and thousands, one way or the other. It's a sea of angels. As far as your eye can see, angels are proclaiming this, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. You think maybe we should join with them? You think maybe that's the church's calling here on earth? To join with heaven? And I heard every creature. Now get this. Again, this is weird, but this is a visionary picture. I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them. you gotta, you got to get the idea here. God owns the creatures of the earth. And so the eagles are flying. And the bears are standing, and the lions are roaring, and the fish in the sea are somehow speaking, and they're all saying together to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, because they've come to understanding, they've seen the revelation, the blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down. And worshiped. Here these elders are falling down again. Now I want to tell you something about the heart of worship, and then we'll close. The heart of worship is about encountering the true and living God. And these elders weren't, weren't falling down because that was their new worship style. These elders were falling down because they had encountered one before whom they felt it was no longer appropriate to remain on their feet. And worship for us is not, first of all, you know, there are all kinds of worship wars. I don't know, have you read about the worship wars? People battling over what to do in churches all around, what to do with worship. Should we sing old songs? Should we sing contemporary songs? Should we have instrumental music? Should we not have instrumental music? Should we raise our hands? Should we sit in our seats? What, what should we do? And I'm not saying there aren't better or worse answers to those questions. What I'm saying is those are not the heart of worship. The heart of worship is coming into the presence of the one who was and is and is to come. And in his presence, we recognize that it is appropriate for us to bow very low. Say, here's my crown. You take it. And when we bow low, we join with all heaven and all the creatures of the earth one day, however that makes sense. And we say, we say it with me, read it up there. To him, say it with me, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might. Forever and ever, amen.